Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, Episode 141, A Constitution and a Prince. Now, first I want to thank, as always, our newest patrons. We have Ivan Dimitrov, Dermot Hurley, Boncho Varhoshkov, Richard Dempsey, Athanas Katsarov, and Michael Frederick. So a huge thank you to all of you. Now, last time, we left off in the early days of 1879. The Kresno-Rozlog uprising had effectively been crushed, although the Ottomans were still struggling to re-establish control there as irregular soldiers ran amok. Bulgaria itself was in transition, debating its constitution, searching for a foreign prince, and debating a new capital. One of the trademarks of this period was the transition to a new generation of Bulgarians, as those who had spent decades fighting the Ottomans mostly didn't make it to see the establishment of a Bulgarian state. Now, one exception was Lubin Karavelov, who, you'll remember, was a part of the founding of the Edinstvo Committee, which organized the Kresnodrozolg uprising, in addition to helping to run the BRCC for many years. However, Karavelov would just barely make it into this new era, as he died of tuberculosis in Ruse in early February of this year. He was just 45 years old, but had already spent decades working tirelessly for the Bulgarian cause publishing newspapers, organizing the BRCC, and even writing poetry. Still, this wasn't the end for the Karavelov family, as his brother Petko had had also studied in Moscow and was currently helping to draft the new Bulgarian constitution and serving in the new assembly. Still, the loss of Lubin Karavelov was a blow to the young Bulgarian state, as he was one of the most experienced and educated Bulgarians around. No doubt this was... Again, a heavy blow for all the people who were hard at work building the new Bulgarian state, but nevertheless, their work had to continue. Shortly after Karavelov's death, the Constituent Assembly met for the first time to approve the constitution and generally finalize the details of how Bulgaria was going to be governed. Dr. Washburn, the president of Robert College in Constantinople, which had already educated dozens of Bulgarians by this point, said of the assembly, quote, The assembly itself was unique made up largely of peasants, many of them in their sheepskin clothes, and I think there was no one in the assembly that knew anything about parliamentary law except the old students of Robert College, who were in force. There was not a member who had any personal experience in civil government. End quote. Now, it's a bit of an exaggeration, not to say that no members of the assembly had any experience. As we know, many had participated in the struggles for independence for Bulgaria and for the Bulgarian church. Others had actually worked in the Ottoman civil service, and many had studied abroad. A full two-thirds of them spoke French, for example. But it was true that more direct experience with the matters at hand was pretty limited, though this is usually the case when you're drafting a new constitution and building a new state, because it's not exactly a, a thing most of us get to do a few times in our lives. Now, Even without considering the members' experience, from the very beginning, the new Constituent Assembly of Bulgaria faced daunting challenges and deep divisions. First among these was the desire to unite all of the lands which had been part of San Stefano, Bulgaria. 
In a meeting in a local church before the assembly officially met, many members decided to gather and discuss what to do. A vocal minority wanted the assembly to actually disperse, to sort of end the whole meeting, arguing that they should focus on creating a united Bulgaria under Ottoman control rather than a smaller Bulgaria with more autonomy. Other factions wanted to push for something we've discussed before, a kind of joint state with the Ottomans similar to the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Stefan Stambolov even said to the Russian officials present, quote, It would have been better had you not come to free us when you were not strong enough to defend your creation, San Stefano, Bulgaria, under the Turks, but as one, we had greater hope for a brighter future. But now, cut into five parts, our hopes die. End quote. Now, all of this was very problematic for Russia. They needed Bulgaria to get on with governing itself. Pushing for a new arrangement was unacceptable for them because, well, Russia was diplomatically weak, as, as Stumbleoff just alluded to. They didn't have the diplomatic or military strength to really push for any adjustments to the Treaty of Berlin. And so they needed Bulgaria to basically follow the letter of the treaty. And that meant deciding on a constitution as soon as possible. And basically at this point, Russia thought that if any changes were made to that treaty and to the general agreements, those changes would only make things worse for Russia. So they wanted the status quo following what had been previously agreed. Now, Russia also made it clear that the Constituent Assembly did not have the right to officially deal with foreign governments and that the best they could hope to do was communicate via private messages to the representatives of foreign governments in Bulgaria. Now, discussions of what to do about the territories Bulgaria coveted took up the first week of the National Assembly's work, but ultimately the moderate faction won out by arguing that disbanding the Assembly would only lead to a worse outcome in the long run. Now, there were also other interesting discussions. For example, there was brief talk of banning proselytization, basically going around and trying to convert people to your religion. Now, this was advocated for by the Orthodox Church, but Many pointed out that this was a bit insulting as it implied that orthodoxy basically couldn't hold its own unless it was sort of protected by the state. Now, we know there were plenty of Protestant missionaries active in Bulgaria, but, well, writing on their impact, and particularly on the American ones, Black states that, quote, the results of this activity are very difficult to estimate. The missionaries reported the Bulgarians to be eager for secular knowledge and education, but impervious to the methods of religious revivalism then current in the United States, end quote. In other words, I mean, you see, even to this day, there are some Protestants in Bulgaria. Uh, you know, I know where there's some of the churches that you walk around them, you see them in Sofia, but it's still a tiny, tiny fraction of the Bulgarian population, despite, as we know now, you know, well over a century of active proselytization efforts, although I don't think they were probably here during communism, but you get the point. Decades of work, not a whole lot to show for it, really. Meanwhile, the assembly had appointed a 15-person committee to review the draft constitution, which had been recently approved by the Russian government. At this stage, the document provided for a unicameral parliament, so one house instead of two, like, for example, we have in the U.S., universal education for at least five years, two years of mandatory military service for all men, some civil liberties, an independent judiciary, though there weren't a lot of details on that, free press, and a prince who had a decent amount of power, but, well, it was limited somewhat. For example, the prince could dissolve parliament and form cabinets at his pleasure, but the cabinet members had to be members of parliament. 
I'll go into more detail about that later. Voting was eligible for literate men over 21, and the parliament was to represent roughly one MP for every 10,000 adults. Now, the Turkish representative at the assembly lodged a formal protest to some of the provisions of the constitution, basically the, those that included that the prince would be hereditary and that Bulgaria would be able to conduct foreign policy, specifically the prince could conduct his own foreign policy, because basically these, in the eyes of the Ottomans, violated the Treaty of Berlin. Frankly, they probably did. But Dondukov simply retorted that, oh, this is still a draft, so we haven't technically violated the Treaty of Berlin now, and just chill. Now, within the assembly, conservatives who argued for a bicameral legislature, so a higher and a lower house, were met with the amusing points that there was no group for a higher house, a kind of senate, to represent. As Black wrote, quote, there was neither a hereditary upper class as in England, nor a federal problem as in the United States, nor a large group of elder statesmen as in France, end quote. So, for all these reasons, the proposal for a upper house, a kind of senate, really went nowhere. Now, importantly, the Constitution really didn't include checks and balances to enforce its division of powers, relying instead on mostly goodwill. Now, if you study constitutional history, you'll know this is a pretty pretty common problem for a lot of constitutions, and that it becomes a very dangerous problem once you get political factions developing. But even during these early days, those factions were indeed beginning to form. The initial division was between liberals and conservatives, though you really have to bear in mind that basically for the duration of the rest of this podcast, up until this very day, labels like conservative, liberal, or socialist, they don't tend to correspond to what most Westerners understand as those meaning. Uh, so take those labels for just sort of general labels. Uh, I know this as a person with a degree in political science coming to Bulgaria and learning about the policies advocated by the various parties that basically, according to traditional political science, they make no sense. If you want an example, the 10% flat tax Bulgaria has today was implemented by the Socialist Party, which if you ask me, is about as anti-socialist a policy as you can get. So yeah, just all those labels don't, don't take them to mean what most Westerners, particularly Americans, think they mean. Now, here I'll quote Yelovich, who wrote, quote, The conservatives tended to be more prosperous and better educated. Among their members were Dmitry Grigov, Todor Ikonomov, Gregory Nachevich, and Konstantin Stoilov. Prior to 1878, they had supported an evolutionary policy towards the port and had resisted revolutionary programs. So far as the constitution was concerned, they believed that the executive branch should be dominant in the new state. Since they did not think that the electorate had sufficient political maturity, they wanted a strong paternal ruler who would guide and educate his subjects. Further, they favored a bicameral legislature, and they did not support a free press. In foreign policy, they were pro-Russian. Their views generally coincided with those of the Russian foreign ministry. The standpoint of the liberals, in contrast, was nearer to the Russian ministry of war. Most of the members of this party, some of whom were Petko Karavelov, Petko, Petko Slavekov, Stefan Stambolov, and Dragan Tsankov, came from the urban areas and had previously been more involved in revolutionary movements. 
because many of them had been educated abroad or exposed to Western ideas, they were more democratic and thus were uncompromising champions of a strong parliament and civil liberties. End quote. So that gives you a general idea of what these parties stand for, stood for in these kind of early days. Now, the conservatives were also sometimes called monarchists because, again, they supported a strong centralized state headed by an empowered monarch. They, importantly, included most of the Chorbajis, remember the Bulgarians who had kind of prospered under the old Ottoman system and, as we know, consistently opposed revolution. Now, to quote Duncan Perry's biography of Stefan Stambolov, quote, Members seem to have had little regard for the peasantry with its naivete and lack of political savvy or political dependability. The conservatives saw the liberals as ill-educated, inexperienced, and easily intimidated by loud talk, end quote. So you have some idea of who these conservatives were, right? They're cautious. They represent the kind of older, what, what money existed, what, what wealthy people kind of existed within the Bulgarian system. Uh, and they were paternalistic. They wanted a monarch. Now, to be clear, few of the liberals were actually peasants or had peasant backgrounds. Again, most of them had, you know, studied abroad and things. and But they did more kind of represent the peasants. And as we saw in the extensive planning for the various uprisings, that representation was a little idealistic. A lot of these liberals, you know, felt they represented the peasantry, but probably didn't understand it very well. Now, Duncan Perry quotes the contemporary politician Vasil Radoslavov, who wrote, quote, The Bulgarian conservatives feared that the excessive liberty granted to the Bulgarian people would lead the country to misfortune instead of prosperity and progress. Whereas the liberals were convinced that progress would be the result of freedom. End quote. So you've got some idea of what these two groups really represent at this point. Uh, and note that at this moment, the liberals enjoy a large majority in the assembly. And so, well, spoiler alert, their views are largely going to win out. Now, as February turned into March, the assembly continued its work. For one, it would soon need to begin making annual tribute payments to the Ottomans and Interestingly enough, these weren't actually payments to the Ottomans. Instead, the great powers calculated basically what portion of the Ottoman Empire's debts should go to Bulgaria based on its size within the empire. And when Bulgaria made those payments, they would actually go essentially directly to the Ottoman, the Ottomans kind of creditors in Western Europe. So all that is to say, when you hear about the kind of the annual tribute payments the Ottomans had or Bulgaria had to make to the Ottomans at this point, it's not really what you think. It's really the great powers coming in and saying, like, we need to make sure that our bankers continue to get paid. Because remember, we've talked about how uh, Western European bankers have basically saddled the Ottomans with an outrageous amount of debt, and the Ottomans have become quite addicted to this debt. And so they wanted to make sure that, yeah, even though Bulgaria is becoming kind of semi-independent within the Ottoman Empire, they want to make sure that Bulgaria is still paying its part to make sure that their bankers continue to profit in this situation. So, yeah. Again, the great powers are focused on themselves over crippling, or, you know, even if it means how, kind of crippling the new Bulgarian state with these large payments. Now, historian Cyril Edwin Black, who I've been quoting a couple times, uh, he published his book, I think in the 40s, sort of the, the kind of on the, the development of the Bulgarian constitution. Now, he summarized the other major challenges that the assembly was facing at this moment, writing, quote, 
It was impossible for the Bulgarian government to pursue its aims in foreign policy during the first few years after the Treaty of Berlin. All the efforts of the country were devoted to working out a satisfactory form of government. End quote. Now, he goes on to talk about how the government was simultaneously trying to work out what kind of government was best suited to its internal development, as well as what kind of government was best suited to, well, gain the territory it desired. And often these two goals would be at odds. Again, you can kind of imagine that more liberal and open and uh, you know democratic Bulgaria might be better for internal development, but the more kind of autocratic and monarchist Bulgaria might be better for uh, more of a military state that could sort of conquer the territory that Bulgaria desired. Now, Black also points out that, quote, it has been frequently charged that when the Bulgarian people assumed the responsibilities of self-government in 1878, they were totally innocent of any experience in the proper conduct of public affairs. These assertions greatly misrepresent the nature of the situation, end quote. He mentions how Bulgarians gained vital political experience in guilds as well as in the struggles for an independent church. He goes on to write how, quote, Another result from the experiences of the last generation before 1878 was the national self-reliance, bred by a distrust of the great powers. One of the major differences between the moderates and the extremists was that while the former trusted no foreign power but Russia, the latter did not even expect the Tsar's policy to bring them any intentional benefits. The Balkan Christians had for so long been a pawn of power politics that of all their leaders, after a period of deep disillusionment following the Crimean War, became quite cynical regarding international affairs. This attitude remained a permanent feature of Bulgarian policy after the liberation, and it explains the instability and opportunism of the relations between the political leaders and the imperialist agents during the establishment of the constitutional system. End quote. So, you get an idea here that, right, the great powers are influencing everything, right? They're, they're extremely powerful at this moment, and they have a lot of influence within Bulgaria. And a lot of them, I'll talk about this more in the future, are really jockeying for power in various ways. But the Bulgarians themselves, a lot of them just don't trust these great powers and for good reason, right? We've seen time and time again for decades that the great powers have manipulated. They've created the impression that they might support an uprising against the Ottomans and then done nothing. They've just let down many Bulgarians time and time again. And now this is really, you know, we're seeing the results of that as Bulgaria tries to turn itself into a regular nation state and it needs to develop foreign policy, but it's still saddled with this deep, deep distrust of these foreign powers. Now, Black goes on to discuss how differing political approaches of the moderates and extremists leading up to 1878 and how the extremists who preached uncompromising revolution were propelled into the driver's seat by the Russian victory, which they helped lay the groundwork for. But that's getting a little ahead of ourselves. Now, by early April 1879, another major decision had finally been made as Sofia was chosen as Bulgaria's new capital. Now, around the time of the April uprising in the recent war, the city had about 20,500 residents in roughly three square kilometers. Now, for context, Sofia covers about 500 square kilometers now. These people were 56% Bulgarian, 30% Jewish, 7% Turkish, and 6% Roma. Today, 
For comparison, the city is 85% Bulgarian, 8.8% Turkish, and 5% Roma, and has just a few thousand Jewish residents. But, okay, we have some sense of the demographics and things, but Sofia wasn't a big city, right? 20,000 people, it's a small town by now, by today's standards. So why was Sofia chosen? Now, for one, the two other kind of best potential choices just weren't really suitable or possible. Plovdiv wasn't in Bulgaria at the time, so not a good option. And Turnovo, well, Turnovo was very well suited to be a medieval capital because, well, it had this unique terrain. You could you could make the Tsarovets fortress around the Yantra River. Worked great for that. But it's really not suited for a modern city because there was very little room to expand. Evident by the fact that if you go there today, the modern portion of the town is sort of just built a, quite far away from the medieval portion because that's where there was space. Now, Sofia, on the other hand, had until you know just now been the capital of the Ottoman Vilayet of Rumelia. So it had government buildings like the Ottoman Konak, which would soon become the royal palace. It was situated at the intersection of major trading routes going from Constantinople up towards Vienna, as well as down towards Thessaloniki. Next, while the city is today on the far end of the Bulgarian state, had Bulgaria achieved all of its territorial ambitions, basically San Stefano Bulgaria, Sofia would have been roughly in the center. So its geographic position was seen as an advantage to eventually taking Macedonia. Although we'll see, Sofia's geographic position will eventually prove a stark disadvantage in this aim. But that was the idea. Now, soon after Sofia was chosen, a religious assembly met in Turnovo to decide another major question. That is, how the Bulgarian Orthodox Church should now be structured. Now, this is a much more complex question than it would at first appear, because if the Bulgarian Orthodox Church were going to be linked inexorably to the Bulgarian state, which seems obvious, right? That's how orthodoxy usually works. Well, then clearly it should move from Constantinople to Sofia. However, doing this would mean losing critical ties to Bulgarians outside of the borders of the small current Bulgarian state. So what should they do? Now, the assembly eventually worked out a kind of compromise in which the Holy Synod of the Bulgarian Exarchate would be symbolically based in Sofia, while the Exarch would continue to run things from Constantinople. So they would have the symbolic connection between the Bulgarian state and the Bulgarian Orthodox Church, as well as its location, but practically speaking, the church could still operate in Constantinople and keep those connections with Bulgarians outside of the Bulgarian state. Now, finally, in April, within a few days of each other, the organic statute of Eastern Rumelia, remember that's kind of the early name for the constitution, and what was eventually renamed from organic statute to the constitution, more or less called the Turnival Constitution because that's where it was decided upon. Well, both were formally accepted and entered into force. So Eastern Rumelia and Bulgaria now had governing documents. Their provisions were essentially identical and matched the ones I laid out earlier in the episode. Remember, they were designed to be very, very similar so that it would be easier for the two states to join together. Black writes how, quote, the final text of the Constitution, which has so hastily been drafted and discussed, bore many traces of the inexperience of the members of the Constitutional Assembly and the negligence of the technical advisors provided by the Russian government. Many of the terms used are inappropriate, the chapters are illogically arranged, and there are a number of repetitions. 
Some relatively unimportant matters receive a great deal of attention in the assembly, while others of considerable importance were passed without discussion. In spite of these faults, however, the Constitution succeeded in describing some in some detail the chief organs of state and the powers attributed to them. End quote. So, the Constitution is far from perfect, it's a bit hastily put together, it's got its flaws and things, and critically, as we'll see, this will come up a lot in the coming episodes, you know, some things, I, I, to me, I, I see this a little bit as uh, indicative of the Bulgarian character. Sometimes there's an obsession with a lot of details and things that, to me, aren't really important, and then other things that are very important are kind of brushed over and not really given a lot of attention. I think more in Bulgarian history, I see this a lot, like tiny, tiny, unimportant details get like five books discussing them, and what to me are huge questions that need discussion, barely anyone talks about. But that's me going on a diatribe. But importantly, you can imagine when there's really, really important questions about how the government is going to govern, things like I mentioned checks and balances, those need to be specific. And when they're not specific, that opens the door for abuse and for, well, constitutional crises. So, well, we're going to have to see how this all plays out. Now, importantly, the Constitution in general delayed a lot of difficult questions. There were quite a few discussions that in, in the Assembly where they basically decided like, yeah, we'll keep it a little bit vague and we'll work out the details down the line. Also, despite the fact that the Constitution was for the most part a liberal European document, it did give fairly substantial power to the prince. Speaking of prince, the final task for the Bulgarian assembly, the final major task, was to find one. Now, remember, the Berlin Congress had decided that the prince could not be from one of the ruling families of the great powers, which makes sense because that would sort of potentially make Bulgaria a permanent ally of that power, and no one really wanted that. Well, except maybe the Russians, but no one wanted it for the Russians. But what the constitution did specify is that the prince had to be orthodox, although this was waived for the first prince because where were they going to find an orthodox prince? There were not too many available who were not part of the Russian royal family, of course. Now, all this taken into account, the prime candidate was a man named Alexander von Battenberg. He was the son of a German prince from the royal family of Hesse and the, do and the son of a Polish countess and his mother. Although because the wife was from a lower rank, Alexander was not entitled to inherit his father's title. He was the nephew of Tsar Alexander II of Russia by marriage, so he had that connection, although the Tsar actually opposed his parents' marriage. But despite this, Tsar Alexander quite liked his young namesake. He had received a military education and had actually fought in the Russo-Turkish War, serving under General Gurko and, for example, fighting in the Battle of Pleven, the Siege of Pleven. Now, there were a few other candidates, some from Denmark, uh, I can't remember, a few other royal houses, but Battenberg was the clear favorite from the beginning, in large part because he had the support of the Russian emperor. His ties to the Tsar, being German, and having family ties to the English royalty, as well as being the son of an Austrian general, and his recent service in the war which had liberated Bulgaria, made him seem a great choice, very well connected. However, no effort was made to investigate his personal qualities or to determine his politics or indeed whether he had the temperament or the skills to succeed in this very difficult position. We've already seen for the Greek monarchy and for the Romanian monarchy that those monarchs did not have it easy. They faced 
incredibly complex and intractable political problems as they tried to build their new states. As Black writes, quote, Had the Grand National Assembly decided to investigate these questions, its members might well have been less eager to elect him. That is Battenberg, end quote. Now, Battenberg was at this moment just 21 years old, and, well, to quote Black one more time, he was honest and honorable, eager to please his superiors and considerate of his inferiors. He also had a pleasing personality, made friends easily, and was popular with his colleagues. At the same time, however, his knowledge of politics was slight and he was unable to cooperate with people whom he did not consider his equals. He paid great attention to military and court formalities, and it often seemed to the outsider that he was more interested in the forms rather than the functions of the military and civil institutions. In spite of his youth and inexperience, he was ambitious to make Bulgaria a strong military and aristocratic state on the model of the only ones with which he was intimately familiar. End quote. Now, I mentioned he had all these connections to all the major powers of Europe. However, many royals who knew him well viewed his selection as a grave mistake and worried about his ability to handle the role. And this is where I'll leave off today. The constitution has been approved, the capital's been selected, and a prince has been selected. Now, the real work of building a state begins. And that's what we'll cover next time. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by Teddy Raven. Check out more information about this episode and all our episodes at bghistorypodcast.com. There is a link in the episode description. And thank you all for listening.